the power button. It's usually what I get wrong. It's power button. That many other people were just as late as I was arriving. I was nervous that I was not going to be on time. I drove here like I was nervous that I was not going to be on time. And then I was basically on time. I was really grateful for that. I wonder what you think you have to be grateful for tonight. You know, we tend to look around at our circumstances. We tend to look inward to our feelings or our encouragements. I think tonight on the road, I would have been grateful if every light would have been green right when I approached it. That is our normal way of thinking about what do I have to be grateful for? Well, what is working in my life now? Is the world working with me or against me? Are my circumstances working for me or against me? And on that basis, I will think, oh, yeah, I have a lot to be grateful for. Am I enjoying my life or am, not, am I not enjoying my life? If you'll turn with me, though, to Isaiah 51, verses 7 and 8. Isaiah 51, 7 and 8. God says, instead of looking around to our circumstances or inward to our feelings, we should be looking up and looking ahead for five encouragements that will reshape how we think about our circumstances, good or ill, so that we thank God for His Word about our situation in the world, whether we like that situation or not. So read along with me in your Bibles as I read out loud for us, Isaiah 51, verses 7 and 8. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. First thing we should be grateful for tonight, no matter how our lives are going, God addresses us. God addresses us. Revelation is something you should be grateful for tonight. This is now in Isaiah 51, the third time God has addressed his people to prepare them for the experience of exile. Verse 1 of chapter 51, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. There he reminded them of the history of his salvation with them, Abraham. Sarah, Eden. Then in verse 4, give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. There he encouraged us with the future of his salvation. And now again in verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness. And here he encourages us with the present strength of his salvation. The strength of his salvation that gives us strength now, even while we're waiting for it to materialize. Church, be thankful for that. Be thankful that God addresses us. 
our Creator Redeemer says to us sinners who trust Him, listen to me. He initiates with us. He invites us. He addresses us in our situation. He takes notice of us. He takes care for us. There is both a tenderness and an authority here. Listen to me. It's a command. Listen. And it's a command from an authority figure. Listen to me. But it's a command from an authority figure into an experience of suffering, exile. Listen to me. It's like the dad in Proverbs saying, My son, give me your heart. Come here. I've got something to say to you. It's going to help you. God wants his word, he wanted his word to change Israel's perspective on their experience of going into exile in Babylon. Listen to me about your suffering in this world about your sorrow under my discipline for your sin, about your confusion as you wait for my salvation, as as you wonder, are Babylon's gods really better and bigger than our God? Because they're beating us. And today, he wants his word to change our shared perspective on the whole situation of the church in exile in this world. Listen to me, he says, not to rebuke you, but to encourage you. Let my word change how you think and feel and act in your loss, in your suffering, in your sorrow, in your displacement, in your powerlessness, in your confusion. Listen to me, God says. Listen. Now, why does God have to start like that? I mean, why doesn't God just start by talking? Just say it. Why does he have to preface it with, listen to me? I'll give you a number of reasons that he has to do that. <laughs> if you're a parent, you can, you can know lots of these reasons you have as a parent to start a sentence to your children, listen to me, <laughs> right? There's lots of reasons you have to start a sentence like that. First, God has to do this with his people because we base our thoughts and feelings on what we see when we look around us. When God expects us to base our thoughts and feelings and opinions on what he says to us, about what we see around us. Second, because our hearts have misunderstood something vital to our flourishing in our situation as it is. Again, parents, how often do you have to tell your children, listen to me, listen to me, look at me, listen to me? Whether they're dealing with an irrational fear or an exaggerated sorrow whether they have taken something out of context that you or somebody else said, or somebody else took a toy out of their hands that they really wanted for themselves, or hurt feelings blown out of proportion. Listen to me, son. Listen to me, sweetheart. You're misunderstanding something. You've taken this the wrong way. You don't understand. Let me help you understand. God also says, listen, because our hearts are not naturally paying attention to him at all. We're busy listening to our hearts. We're busy listening to what our hearts tell us we should feel or think, or how they think we should act. I mean, we might hear about God out for a minute, but we hear what he says with unbelief and resentment very often, or at least skepticism. 
Come on, really? You can't be serious. You're saying I should handle this situation like that? That's just unrealistic. I can't feel like that about that person when they did this to me. I can't feel like that about those people who don't share my opinions and persuasions because I think they're going to ruin everything. Don't you understand, God? I'm right. I don't want to hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, but God, I, I just don't think you understand. What? Now, we don't say that to God. We don't pray like that, but we feel like that. And we listen like that, don't we? We listen to preaching like that. We read our Bible like that. Well, that might have been realistic back then, but this is today. I just can't do it. But that kind of thinking is what landed Israel in exile. You should trust me, not Babylon. You should trust me, not Egypt. You should trust me, not Assyria. Listen, God says, to me. Not to your heart, not to the world, not to your fears and your feelings, not to your own assumptions and appetites. Listen to me. Our churches today see spiritual Babylon, worldliness, prevailing all around us. It seems to be encroaching on us every day. The suppression of natural law, the silencing of conscience, the erosion of truth, the dominance of scientific naturalism, the prevalence of moral relativism, the allure of pagan mysticism, even in the churches, spirituality without religion or authority, the normalizing of hypersexual immorality. We feel overwhelmed and we feel outmaneuvered by the world. Western culture quit listening to God's voice a long time ago. And that makes it tempting for churches to quit listening to God's voice as well. We think we need to listen to a different voice in order to thrive as churches. Whether that's statistics from sociologists or polls about what unbelievers want and expect from churches or popular excuses for sins that people use to identify themselves more and more today. I mean, it's fine to have convictions. Just don't expect to build a church based on convictions. That's ridiculous. Not in this day and age. In short, listen to the world and give it what it wants. Otherwise, your church is sunk. Isn't that how it feels sometimes? Amid all of our fear and confusion, God says to us still today, listen to me. Listen to me. He's offering us the encouragement and knowledge and perseverance that we need. I have power to energize you. I have promised to sustain and save you. I have a word for you. And that word is the truth and hope of the gospel promise that I've been speaking to you in Jesus Christ for centuries. God is drawing near to his churches in his word of sovereign mercy and salvation in scripture. Listen to me. Stop listening to the voices that make sin look normal. And righteousness looks strange. Stop listening to that. Stop listening to the lie that you are powerless against your own sins and your surroundings. Stop listening to your self-pity in a cultural exile. Listen to God. Listen to his word of promise in scripture. And act on those words in your hearts, in your habits, and in your churches. Take God more seriously than you take man. Church, thank God together that God has spoken. He's not silent. He has spoken. And you have 66 books of his word to rifle through and to feed on 
just pick one and read it. It will encourage you. It will correct you. It will instruct you. He addresses us in Scripture. Revelation is what we should be grateful for. Secondly, we know God's righteousness. Instruction and salvation is something to be grateful for if you're a Christian. If you know God's righteousness, you should be grateful for that. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Here, God's righteousness is parallel with his law. But in verse 8, his righteousness was parallel with his salvation. So law and salvation go together as two sides of the same coin, two sides of God's righteousness. The righteousness he has in, in himself and expects of us, and the righteousness which he, with which he saves us from the world, the flesh, the devil, his righteous concern for those who are oppressed under the power of their own sins. That's righteousness too. So there's this inherent burning righteousness, the cleanness, the purity, the moral uprightness of God, and then there is the relational righteousness of God by which he shows his concern, his saving concern, for all those who are oppressed under a sense of the weight and guilt and impurity of their sins. He's concerned for that. That's righteousness too. Now why does God address and name his people like this? You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. He means that as an encouragement to them while they're in exile and on their way into exile. God has treated Israel very uniquely in this way and they knew it. What other God is like our God. What other nation is like our nation to whom this great God has revealed this great law and his great power to save our nation out of another nation? That's never happened before. Not every nation had this God speaking this law to their hearts for their instruction and for their salvation. Babylon certainly didn't know God's righteousness in either way. God's law was not in the heart of the Babylonians who took Judah into exile. So Christian church, not nearly everyone around you knows the righteousness and salvation of your God like you do. Now it's normal within these walls to hear righteousness talk. But it's not normal out there, is it? You know God's law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, elaborated in the law of Moses, illustrated in the history of Israel, fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has engraved this law on your heart as a Christian. It's a gift to know what God expects of you. And it's an even greater blessing to know by God's grace that Jesus has met all of the law's demands on your behalf. At God's behest, God told him to do that for you. He obeyed the law's commands for us and endured all its curse for us in obedience to his Father's command to do that for you and me. The Father and the Son were lockstep in that. And now the Spirit of God poured out in the New Covenant has written that law on our hearts so that we obey it more and more. Brother, sister, do not take that for granted. You be grateful that, for that. Don't squander that. Savor it. Savor it. You know God's righteousness. You know what it's like to savor your Thanksgiving dinner, don't you? You remember it all year. Praise God for that. Sweet memory. 
You take that first bite of turkey and dressing or gravy, and you know what you're like. You're just, you don't even want to chew it yet. Some of you men, I know you feel like this. You're like, mmm, that is so good. You love it. You just want to roll it around in your mouth. That first bite, it makes your jaw kind of tingle a little bit if you had not had anything to eat yet that day. Those beans with bacon and onion. Mmm. Dressing and mashed potatoes. The slice of pumpkin pie floating in a container of Cool Whip. Don't lie. I know you do that. Don't lie to me. I'm not the only one who does it. But if you got bad COVID or long COVID, maybe you couldn't save your food for a while. Maybe you lost your sense of taste. Some people are like that spiritually. They have zero savor for God's righteousness. They've never been able to taste it. Now you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but they have not, and many never will. There are those who know God's righteousness and those who do not. If you are among those who know God's righteous character and salvation, salvation not just from the penalty of your sins, but from the power of your sins over you, you should be thankful for that. You have more to be thankful for than you realize. No matter how your life is going. Well, Christian, where would you be if God had not shown the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into your heart? Where would you be? Hmm? Where would you be had he not revealed his righteousness to you and your sinfulness in the light of his righteousness? Where would you be if he had not given you an overwhelming sense of your guilt and your pollution in your sin? Where would you be if he had not then pointed you to the cross of Christ where God's righteousness and his salvation meet in Jesus' blood? What sin would not have enslaved you had Jesus not come to rescue you and redeem you, where would you be had God's Spirit not melted your heart and drawn you to the beauty and glory and all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ as your Savior? Whatever you lack in this life, if you are redeemed, He has already made it up to you a hundredfold in the knowledge of His righteousness. And He's also given you a family of faith and a father in the faith who feeds you on the knowledge of that righteousness. You should be grateful for that. Third, God gives us courage, resolution. And when God calls us here to listen to him, listen to me, you who know my righteousness, you on whose hearts are written my law, what does he say when he calls for our attention? Look there in verse 7. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their reviling. That counsel in itself is a great reason to thank God. The world finds Christians despicable. We are bigots in their eyes. We are backward, we are narrow-minded, and we are exclusionary. When the spirit of the age is forward-thinking, broad-minded, and infinitely inclusive. Now, disdain like that, that comes with self-righteousness attached to it, like everybody's better than the churches, and everybody knows it, because we're more inclusive, and we're more broad-minded, and we're more forward-thinking than the churches are. That kind of disdain from the world can feel intimidating. 
because you're outnumbered at work. You're outnumbered in your neighborhood. You're outnumbered at the gym. You're not in the majority in the world in knowing and loving God's righteousness. You're in the minority. And so we can often ask or wonder or fear, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to the church if we keep believing and preaching like this? But of course, we are not the first Christians to be despised and insulted by the world around us because of who we believe and what we believe. God says to Judah, and still says to the churches today, that we need not and should not fear anything that the enemies of Christ and the enemies of His church can think about us, say about us, or do to us. John Flavel, the pastor from the 1600s, said, The natural person, the non-Christian, fears man, not God. The strong Christian fears God, not man. The weak Christian fears man too much and God too little. That is where we need to grow. We need to stop thinking, feeling, deciding, and prioritizing based on fear of man. This is why we chicken out of evangelistic conversations. This is why we fudge on personal holiness and church membership and church discipline. But fear of man is unbelief. It is unbelief. It is the sociology of unbelief. Listen again to John Flavel from his little book, A Practical Treatise on Fear. He says this, Unbelief persuades men that their lives and all that is dear to them is in the hands of their enemies and therefore persuades them that the best way they can take to secure themselves is by compliance with the will of their enemies and by pleasing them. But faith determines quite the contrary. It tells us we and all that is ours are in God's hand and no enemy can touch us or ours till he give them a permission and therefore it is our duty and interest to please him and commit all to him. End quote. God wants us to fear him, not man. The path to fearing God though is the path of faith in God. We believe that what God thinks and says and does in relation to us is infinitely more consequential than what man can think or say or do against us. We are not in the hands of our enemies. We are in the hands of our Creator and Redeemer. And this is where your doctrine of God's sovereignty has to hold water for you. If you want to be a Christian, you have to believe that God is in control. That God is a God worthy of the name God. He's even in control of what our enemies are able or not able to do to us or against us. The worst sin, the worst injustice ever committed, the crucifixion of God's eternal Son, Christ Jesus, was planned and even predestined by God. God was in control of that. And if God was in control of the worst thing that ever happened to the best person who ever lived, 
then God's sovereignty over everything else should remain unquestioned for you, no matter what happens. Otherwise, you end up either as a practical dualist who thinks God is just duking it out with Satan and we're not sure who's going to win and he's not really able to superintend human evil for divine good, or you end up as a practical deist who thinks God is only observing from afar rather than upholding and directing all things by the word of his power here. But whether you're a practical dualist or a practical deist, you're not living like a practical Christian. No matter what you say, you believe about God. Because you're not believing in the God of Joseph, who told his brothers, who sold him into slavery. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that, right? Your dad's favorite, you got that pretty little robe on, and they sell you into slavery because they hate that robe and what it says about you and your relationship to your dad. They sell him into slavery. They reconcile years later. And what does Joseph tell them? How did Joseph make it through that? Did he make it through that by saying, oh, God didn't know what you were going to do, and he didn't have anything to do with that, and he wasn't in control of that, and he didn't mean that for, for that to happen to me? Is that what Joseph said? No, it's the total opposite. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Same it. They meant it for evil, selling him into slavery. God meant it, them sending him into slavery, for good. That's how he got through it, and that's how he could say the next sentence. Therefore, don't worry about you and your little ones. I'll care for you. Genesis 50, 20. That is the Christian God Christians must trust. Christian belief believes that our God is a God worthy of the name. And because Christians fear God, we need not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. To be dismayed is to be demoralized or disheartened or discouraged, is to despair. It's kind of to be surprised and maybe a little shocked in a way that makes us wonder, how are we ever going to make it through this? Whoa, I didn't know it was going to be this bad. Dismayed. But God commands us, commands us. I am not allowed to fear like that, and I am not allowed to feel like that. Why not? Because God is not only in control of the church's enemies, God will judge them. And for this too, we should be thankful. Fourth encouragement for which we should be thankful, God will judge our persecutors. Retribution. That's something to be grateful for. For, verse 8, the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool. Don't be afraid of them. Why? Because the moth is going to eat them and the worm is going to devour them. That's why you shouldn't fear them. You're welcome. That's what God says. In the context of Isaiah 51, that's an encouragement to the faithful. But it's not just a comment on the brevity of life, that they'll eventually die and they'll go the way of all the earth. and They're going to be buried six feet under. It's not just what Job meant when he said of both the rich and the poor in Job 21, 26, they lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. That's not what he's saying here in Isaiah 51. 
Here it repeats verse 5. My arms will judge all peoples, and it anticipates verses 22 and 23. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. The bowl of my wrath, judgment, retribution. In fact, it anticipates the very last verse of Isaiah's prophecy. The redeemed shall go out and look on the dead. But a lot of people don't read all the way to the end of Isaiah. A lot of people wish this verse weren't in the Bible. But it is, and it's there for our encouragement. The redeemed shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. End of the book of Isaiah. Period. Those who torment God's church without remorse will be tormented by God without end. So when it says here in Isaiah 51, the moth will eat them up and the worm will eat them like wool, the import is that the worm will eat them like the worms ate Herod after he executed James and arrested Peter when the angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That was a judgment on Herod. That wasn't just, oh, I'll just send him to his grave and he'll die. No, that's a judgment. It's a judgment to be eaten by worms like that in the same way it's a judgment to be vomited up out of the land of Israel or vomited up by a whale. That's a judgment. And Judah's tormentors will go to the place where Jesus said, quoting Isaiah 66, 24, their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Mark 9, 48, Jesus believes that. And we should thank God it will be so. God will do justice for Living Hope Bible Church and for Grace Covenant Baptist Church. He will do justice for us. He will see to it himself. And here in Isaiah 51, God's judgment of his enemies functions as the reason for your courage in the face of the culture's contempt for you and for your Christ. Now, why is that so? Why does judgment function as the reason for your courage? Don't fear them. Don't fear their revilings. For the the worm is going to eat them. Why does that sentence work? Why does that logic work? Why is God's judgment, his end time judgment, a driver of Christian courage under persecution now? I mean, what good does end time judgment do me now? How does that drive my current courage and desire to persevere in loyalty to Christ? Well, it's because God's judgment at the end of time promises that this life is not all there is worth living and dying for. That's why. It's a reality check. It's a snap of the fingers in your eyes. Hey, wake up. This is not over. There's another life coming, a more consequential life, eternal life. We will all rise from the dead either to everlasting life under God's blessing or everlasting punishment under his curse. And if we die under man's contempt for our loyal obedience and love to Jesus, then we will rise to eternal blessing that can never be taken from us. 
and that will only become more and more satisfying as we live with Christ throughout all eternity. This is where the rubber meets the road. Jesus suffered contempt for us on the cross. And now we suffer a little contempt for him. But we need not fear it because he promises an eternity of blessing with him if we remain faithful to him. It's as if Isaiah is asking us, do you really believe this stuff? You you will need to believe it if you live in Babylon. Besides, what is there to fear? Pain? Violence? Shame? Loss? You fear dying a violent death at the hands of atheists or jihadists? There will be plenty of grace for you to endure that if it comes to it. Listen again to John Flavel. I'm just going to paraphrase him here. He says, basically, can you not distrust your own strength and ability without also limiting God's ability to strengthen you? Look, I know you doubt your ability to endure suffering, but surely you shouldn't be doubting God's ability to enable you to endure that suffering, even though you can't imagine it now. So doubt yourself all you want, but don't you dare doubt God's ability to overcome your doubt in yourself and strengthen you to persevere through that kind of suffering. That's unbelief. And Flavel goes on. God can make that... I love how the Puritans use Old Testament imagery. This is wonderful. God can make that little stock of patience that you have to hold out as if it were the poor widow's cruise of oil until deliverance come. He can enable your patience to all sorts of trials, to the highest degree of trials, to the longest duration of trial. He'll make your oil supernaturally last. He'll make your patience last. He'll make your threshold of pain heighten in that very hour so that you can endure it. God's coming judgment on all unrepented wickedness and opposition to God in this church is something you should give thanks for this Thanksgiving. That's an appropriate thing to thank God for at your Thanksgiving table. God wins. God wins. He will win. And not only his judgment, but his own eternal vindication as the righteous God himself. And that's the last thing we want to give thanks for. God's righteousness will remain. Vindication. You know, it looks like right now, well, the, all that's going to remain is wickedness. If it keeps on going like this. But the moth and worm will eat up the wicked. By contrast, however, my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Christian, I know how it looks right now here in the world. It looks like wickedness is winning. It looks like godliness is dying on the vine. The spirit of the age seems to carry everything else along with it in its stream. And it's a strong current. But thank God it will not be so forever because God runs this and God wins this. His righteousness will be forever. His righteousness will win the eternal day. You should expect it. You should hope in it. And you should be grateful for that expectation. His salvation will encompass 
all kinds of people from all kinds of places, from every generation first to last. This is why you don't have to fear man in the present, because God in Christ has won an eternal future for you in the blood and righteousness of Jesus. So Christian, tell me, when is the last time you thanked God? At Thanksgiving, no less. That God addresses us in His Word. That you know His righteousness for instruction and salvation when others don't. That you are freed from the fear of man because God will condemn all those who hold His church in contempt. That God's righteousness will remain forever and man's self-righteousness will come to nothing. Living Hope Bible Church, you are on the right side of history no matter what the world says, and it will not be long before you are on the right side of eternity because you will be on the right hand of Jesus Christ. So, listen to God. You who know righteousness, the people in whose hearts is God's law, fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but God's righteousness will be forever and His salvation to all generations. Thank God that He wants you to listen to that. Let's pray together. Father, how grateful we are that you have spoken such wonderful encouragements to us in your word. We confess we have neglected them for far too long. We confess that we are often only encouraged by what advances our own worldly interest, our material gain, our practical, pragmatic advantage in this world. And you have told us to look upward and look forward to greater encouragements than we could ever imagine. So, Father, change our perspective. Change how we think and feel and act in our present circumstances in this world based on what you have said to us in your word. For Jesus' sake, amen.